Movies Till Dawn continue on Channel 5 with Island of Lost Souls. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating, always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. Do you know why we're doing this, by the way? We're, we're going to talk about Adele Aldrich. Do you know who Adele Aldrich is? No. And and that's one of the strange things about Adele. Everybody should know who she is. She's a, a really important figure in the story of women in film. Um, she was the first woman to direct a network television movie. It was in 1976, and Adele directed a movie called Daddy, I Don't Like It Like This. It was written by and starred Burt Young uh, and Talia Shire. Burt Young, of course, is the iconic character actor he... Um, He's Paulie in the Rocky franchise, uh, but he's in so much else. He was in The Gambler, Once Upon a Time in America, Pope of Greenwich Village. I mean, you know, a huge amount of credits. And uh, part of the reason that this conversation with Adele happened, well, the main reason, is that I've been making a documentary about Burt uh, over the past few years. And it was very important to interview her because in addition to her, you know, the fact that she was the first woman who directed this movie— uh, for, for network television, Daddy, I Don't Like It Like This is a very personal story. Bert wrote it as well as, uh, you know, starred in it. And I needed to get from Adele why this movie happened and why it was so important to both her and to Bert. So that's what you're basically going to hear, um, uh, you know, in, in, in this interview. Um, the, it was a movie of the week. And movie of the weeks were ubiquitous at the time. They were made from the late 1960s to the early 1990s. All the networks made them. They were two-hour movies, or really 90 minutes plus commercials. Uh, and they churned them out. And a lot of them followed a certain formula. Sometimes they were called disease of the week, um, for obvious reasons. Uh, they, they were, and there, you know, there were there were a lot of mediocrities. There were some outright bad, but there were some really good ones too. They served as kind of a launching pad, the way B movies did in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s for young filmmakers. Um, actually, I did a podcast interview with Randall Kleiser, who directed Grease, and uh, he started his first big break was a movie called The Boy in a Plastic Bubble with John Travolta, which was a movie of the week. I saw that. Oh, so early, mid-1970s, 75, 76, around the same time as this. Um, you know, actually, my father directed a few of them um, in the late 70s and early 80s, and I worked on one of them. The production period was brutal. Um, they, were, they were usually 15-day shoots. The post-production experience was non-existent. The director got to work two or three days on it. The, um, the mix happened in, like, two hours, and then it was on TV a week later, and it was off TV forever. And it's kind of sad that they're off forever because, you know, there's so many of them, and I keep thinking it would be great to have a cable channel that was like the movie of the week channel because there's all this material out there, and nobody does it. Meanwhile, you have like... Uh, the, I found this this cable channel called uh, MeTV, and it's every lousy sitcom that you never want to see again. And, and sometimes four or five in a row of Petticoat Junctions, six or seven Gomer Piles. I mean, really, do we need that? But, but I don't know. I, I, th I think the, the movie of the week channel is, is you know, somebody's got to figure that out. 
Um, anyway, so that's what the movie of the week was. And Adele, like I said, she was the first woman to, to do one of these. So who is Adele Aldrich? Um, Adele, you could say, was born into Hollywood royalty. Her father was a great director, Robert Aldrich, um, huge figure in mid-century cinema. He directed uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, um, Dirty Dozen, Kiss Me Deadly, The Longest Yard. I mean, a, a huge list of wonderful uh, and exciting and very impactful films. Uh, and Adele grew up in the movie business. She started uh, by working with her father as a script supervisor. Um, a script supervisor was, well, it, it's, a, it's a job that not a lot of people who don't know movies, who haven't worked on movies, you know, know about it. Uh, it's not a job supervising a script. It's the person who watches the continuity and makes sure from shot to shot, actors are using the same hands on this gesture for the hold the glass or the cigarette or the whatever. It, frankly, it, it's, people aren't so exact about it anymore as they used to be. It's a little looser now. Um, but the script supervisor was traditionally a female job. It was one of the only female jobs on the set. In fact, it was the only one outside of makeup and wardrobe. Um, and I don't know how it became a female job, but that was, you know, and, and it was a good thing. That was, the, that was the break. And so she worked on her father's films and then others as a script supervisor. How she made the transition from script supervisor to director at the behest of Burt Young, who had been in one of her father's movies that she worked on, is the story you're going to hear. Um, you're also going to hear about her experience becoming uh, th that director in terms of how she had to deal with the network and how she had to deal with Bert and his exceedingly eccentric and slightly scary crew of people who were around him uh, at the time and, and throughout his life. Uh, she's going to make some references. I just kind of want to lay some groundwork here for you. Um, she, you know, she, I don't want to speak in riddles, but, but she talks a lot about this crew of people around Bert and they tend to be guys and they tend to be Italian and they tend to be from Queens and they tend to be a little gangsterly. So she's going to tell you about a man named Sidney Korshak. Um, he was a famous, but kind of in a secret way, mob lawyer. And she'll introduce you to how she, you know, got to know him. Um, part of the story has to do with something that, and this is why I interviewed her for uh, this documentary that I've been doing on Bert over the last few years. Uh, this film was extremely personal to Bert. In fact, it's, uh, it's a haunting and quite difficult film to watch because it's about a tragedy that happens to a young boy. And it has its origins in an event in Bert's life with his own kid. And this was another tightrope she had to walk as a first-time director, directing a movie that was so emotional and so central to the star's life. Um, so that's, that's the setup. When I finally finished this documentary I've been working on forever, you'll understand more about what happened to Bert. Uh, right now, this feels like a little bit of a tease. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, perhaps some of you like to do the, the uh, acrostic puzzle, which like, doesn't really make sense. But, you know, you, you, you like doing it anyway. So that's what this interview is sort of like. So please enjoy this conversation I had with Adele Aldrich. My father was doing a film called Twilight Last Gleaming in Germany. And I went to visit him and uh, Bert was in the picture. 
and I was there for a two-week vacation for me and to see my father. We stayed at a, a hotel in Bavaria next to the studios, and every night I would walk in and I would see Bert at the bar. And he had all these papers around him, and he was writing. And I met him on the set, and I met him at the hotel a couple of times, you know, night five, night eight, whatever. <laughs> you know, I finally stopped and say, hi, what are you doing? And he said, I'm writing. I thought, that's great, good, bye, see you tomorrow. So Bert was at the bar, and by the eighth or ninth day, he would say, come over here, come over here. And we would talk, and he says, I'm writing a script. I said, oh, that's great. He said, I hear you're a script supervisor. Yeah. He really had no idea what a script supervisor did, but it opened up a conversation, and he said, you know, when I get back to L.A., he said, maybe you'll help me type this. And I said, sure, sure, great. We go back, I go back to L.A., they stay there, three months, four months go by, the phone rings, hey. <laughs> and he says, I want to buy you lunch. And he buy, I meet him for lunch, and he comes with these stack of papers. No idea how to put them in a script form. They were thoughts, they were feelings, they were just his memories and what he was thinking about. Now, he'd been in Rocky. <laughs> he now was doing Twilight Last Gleaming with some great actors. I mean, one would think we'd have a format, but I guess he thought that a script supervisor was somebody that formatted these things. So I said, sure, give it to me. You know, do you need to write? No, no, no. And I went home and started to read it. And I was so emotionally brought into these thoughts and to this script, I didn't think I could do this any kind of justice. So we met again a couple of times, and I got to know him. He was telling me the stories, and uh, I said, okay. He said, well, if you can get it in the script, you can direct it. And I guess in our conversations at the bar, he had heard that that was my next step in life that I was going to be doing. I was in a transition stage when we met. I was just getting a divorce. I had three young kids. Um, and I said, okay. And the character of this person, Bert Young, the soul, the heart, the pain he was in came on these pages, I never really thought I did it justice because it was something that was so raw. And the, the film is quite sad, really. It's not, you know, you don't walk out laughing and giggling and scratching. And uh, so that's how we met, and that's how that came together. Now, you have to also remember that this is 78, 79. People weren't making movies like that for TV. There were, it was a big time for movies of the week. It was a big time for specials and afternoon specials and things like that. But these kind of stories weren't being told. Now, you can say it's child abuse. You can say it's parent neglect. You can, there's all words for it now. There weren't words in the 70s for this kind of material. And the, the technical things that weren't available to us to do, as you say, the magical forests of this. They, they all had to be done by lights and, and, and camera and, and, 
you know, things, you know, to, that wasn't today's world. So even the fact that we got the okay to do this production um, was quite amazing. Part of it uh, was that kind of connection. Part of it uh, was the head of CVS was uh, sort of an old friend of my father's. Uh, turned out not to be such a good friend, but was sort of an old friend and, and sort of gave, they thought it would make money. They thought it would be, not unlike the times now in Hollywood, I don't think they ever read the script. I think they, the word packaging wasn't available at that time. The agencies hadn't done that, but they just saw a little package here. They just saw Italian Bert together as husband and wife after Rocky. And that's even how they advertised it, right. which <laughs> was not at all how it should have been advertised. Sure. So I think that's how it got made. I think the latter is probably what happened. I'm not going to say Bill Self, who was running CBS at that time, wasn't a bright, intelligent guy. He was. Um, you know, he had uh, gun smoke on or whatever he had on there. They were bringing him in the money. They, you know, I just think it was on the desk and, okay. They had provisions, but they, that was how they did it. Right. The first process was, he says, you need to meet some people. Okay. And uh, he says, a guy's going to call you, and we'll set up this meeting. I said, okay. I get a phone call from a very famous attorney at the time, uh, Harry Korshak. And uh, he said, uh, okay, we have a meeting in New York next week uh, on Monday. I'll send a car. You'll have a ticket. Do you want to spend the night? Do you want to come back? I said, no, I'll come right back. I had three kids at home had no idea what I was walking into. Remember, I'm 33, 34. Cute, <laughs> young, blonde, little Lance dresses, uh, <laughs> and uh, had this meeting. We in my home had Sunday night dinners. Whether we were living in the home or away from my father's home, we were always at Sunday night dinners. I so clearly remember my father saying, well, how was your week? I said, I went to New York and I met with Harry Korshak and somebody, and he just about fell off of his seat. <laughs> and I, he said, why didn't you ask me? Why didn't you tell me? I said, I didn't know. He said, I have to meet some people. I went to meet some people. So I went into this place in Astoria, New York, and uh, met some friends. And Their concern over the film and Bert doing the film was it was so close to events in his life and he was fragile at that time in his life. They wanted to know that this young little girl could protect him, would guide him, would be there for him should emotional problems happen. That's that's, those are my words. That's not how they asked me the questions. That's not, I didn't know better to respond a different way. I hadn't directed, so I can't say, I've done this before with this actor. That I, that it, it wasn't that time yet. And that's what I walked out. They really were concerned. They loved this person. They wanted to know that he was in a protected environment. That's all they wanted to know. Now, the list of the people in the room were 
friends, and it was very interesting. I was too young, too stupid to know and realize who they were. We didn't have Google. You didn't look up names and, and situations. And I had not really got to the process of knowing Bert that well yet. Because it took us a year to make it from that meeting to going to agents, to getting an agent, to taking it to different studios. And we had taken it to a few studios before because I think our Bert's plan was to make it a film. And again, the history of Hollywood, they weren't making those kind of films at that time. And so it ended up being a TV movie with Lee. Sidney Korchak was the major mob lawyer. Correct. And, but he was famous for being invisible. He was famous for being invisible, but you know, he also was, at his time, a great lawyer. In, in retrospect, I've learned all this. I certainly didn't know it at the time. I mean, he was a big divorce lawyer for some very famous people. And, you know, for represented very many uh, unpopular people. But he was a very sharp man, very well dressed, you know, very. Uh, years later, uh, at a bar in Venice called Harry's Bar, I met him again, probably 25 years later, before, right before his passing. And we had a good chuckle and a laugh about it because he told me, his side of my going on this uh, interview, as we should call it. It differed in, they were auditioning me, and it differed in, uh, you know, I, I knew you didn't know where you were. <laughs> I, I knew you were innocent. Uh, I, I, I knew that, and yet I couldn't uh, help you through it. It was part of the process. And, I, and in a way, he was saying, um, if it offended you in any way, I'm sorry. But it didn't uh, offend me because I didn't know enough then. And it still didn't offend me even to today. Right. I, I, he wanted to know what my father thought because he obviously knew who my father was. Right. And I think I relayed the story about when he asked me what I did this week, he fell off the chair, but <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Uh, I think the only thing I had going for me is that I was a woman. All these guys had wives, they all had mistresses, they all had whatever you call the girlfriend of the girlfriend. They wanted to know, see this person that was a mother that had children, that had some problems in life, uh, was gonna protect him. Protect him uh, with loving arms, as a mother, as a whatever. I think that's what their concern was. Every day we started out with five friends that would be hanging around. The next day there would be 10, some days there would be 20. I had this young guy that my age that was the producer, Jay Daniels, and I, it was his pr first producing. We had, he was a production manager before, and every day he'd come up to me, he'd say, we have 10 more lunches today, Adele. We can't do this, we have to stay on budget. I said, it is what it is. You know, by the end we had 20 more lunches every day, and they You're were- not gonna really say guys, <laughs> <we're not serious laughs> right. And, and the, the problem, which I handled, uh, didn't really quite realize I was handling it, was they were in line first before the crew. So finally, on the second day, I had to go up to, to Bert and his brother, who was there, and said, you know, listen, I'm happy they're here for you. It's great. I gotta feed the guys first, because we only have a half hour. And if I'm gonna get back and get this before sunset, that, and then Bert understood. And they came, and they had their own separate table, and, you know, by the end, we had 20 more lunches every day. So. <laughs> 
luckily I had already worked with Altman at that time and that kind of lunch thing that was kind of French hours kind of a thing I understood and uh, this was just part of the package and they, the, the friends were coming every day and some days there were more and some days there were less. So they were watching him. We w went for a location scout, obviously, before filming. And he walked me, probably like you, through the neighborhood, through the church, through the street, through where things happened, to where it was. And it was quite emotional. It was, uh, it was quite heart-wrenching, actually. And, you know, and we had many conversations because we still had another month or two, you know, do you really think we should do it there? Do you, don't you really think maybe it would be better if we went to another street? No, it has to be here, it has to be here. And uh, it was there. By the time I was, we started filming, um, what the real story was, what he was trying to convey, uh, what he thought the purpose of making th the film was. Um, and he wanted, he believed he needed the reality to give him inside for the acting experience. What's the story? Except I got you alone. What the hell are you talking about? You always want sirloin. How do you think I'd do it in a lousy 50 bucks a week? What the hell are you talking about? You steal from the supermarket. You shoplifting food? Yes! I give you more than 50 bucks. That's what you think after the rent, but you figure it out. Did I ever stop you from spending on the family? Answer that! Creep. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. How'd the game go? Ask your father for some money. Oh. Tell him your shoes are falling apart. Look, the kid needs shoes, he gets them. Don't make that noise, huh? Creep. I want to come home and be left alone, okay? I don't care if I don't eat! Just leave me alone! Creep. Stop it! You do this. You do this, and I could tear your head off. You know that? This was not a trained actor. This was, you know, not Lee Strasberg school, not anything. This was a man that acted from his heart, from his soul. And that's what you see in him then, today. It's a man who's very complicated, and... Um, he needed the reality of it at that time. He may have progressed on and doesn't need that so much, I don't know. But at that period of his time, he needed the reality. I think I remember my mom and dad, but they were always trying to hurt me, so I can't see them anymore. Gee, Helen, I'm sorry. Where do you live? Are you new? I've been here more years than I know, Peter. I live in a big orphanage, and it's pretty nice. I have lots of friends. You'd better get back now, Peter Agnelli. Walk me to the path, Ellen. Well, I know the story. I know um, at that I have at that time had three children. 
I can't imagine losing a child even to this day. I can't imagine losing a child in any way. I don't know how a parent goes on, or, you know, after a simple accident of losing a child. I, I, I don't know how you survive it. Um, and we were only two and a half years after his son had passed. And that is, uh, that's raw. That's, you know, I hadn't been to therapy yet, <laughs> you know. I didn't know, but I knew, I, I thought I knew what he wanted. And I know he was happy with the outcome. I think he hoped that his son had a secret friend. I think that was his point of wanting to do this, to show what happens in a family, how a family disintegrates within itself, um, and that children can go out and find their own base of companionship, friendship, imagination, or whatever, and perhaps survive. Um, but we didn't have words for that. We didn't have, you know, those kind of things out in the world yet. You know, in the world, nobody talked about this kind of stuff. Nobody, you know, it was just the, the unspokens. Right. Do you know what happened to the son? I do. And we did Bert's version of how he wanted to per portray what happened to his son. Can I ask you to tell me what happened? I'm not comfortable talking about that. Are you shopping for your mother, Peter? She walks and talks and is made from wire. Oh, she looks like a choo-choo train. Brace, brace, metal, Marilyn. I bet she has Marilyn every night. Come on, I got a pay for this. I know, I know. Come on. Oh, it's for the bread. How much did your mother give you for the store? We charge at the Spanish store. Oh, man, you mean you have money? No, I don't have any. Oh, come on, let's get out of here. She really looks funny with her teeth, huh? It, I was very lucky. I, 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 you know, did my first script supervision at 18. I had, was blessed by working under my father's hand for the first five or six years of my career and I became good enough that I was able to go out, leave the family fold, and work with some of the great directors and actors of our time at that time. So I had seen everything. I was always a very, I'm a very interested technical person. I always wanted to know about the camera. I always wanted to know about lenses. In those days you had to write down the lens, the distance from the thing. The camera to the person to the da 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 da. It was very technical. You know, there, there were no iPhones, <laughs> there were no computers, there were no nothing. And so I had a really good background of the film business. And I'd seen a lot of directors direct a lot of actors differently. Um, I don't know that I had done a film that was as personal as this film was. Um, it didn't throw me. I have to say, I went, it was saddened me. And it was every 
night trying to figure out the next day's work, how to approach it to him on an intellectual level, not on a filming level as, as you know, you and I, we can all talk here about it. You know, this is going to be your close-up, this is going to be the wide shot, I'm going to do the close-up first because I think your emotion's going to come out here and then we're going to pull back and do the long shot. Um, it was getting him to understand why I was doing things a certain way. And, you know, of course, his answer, which was always a great answer, is why don't we have four cameras? You know, why don't we have three cameras? Well, the answer is we can't afford it. <laughs> you know, I've got 10 people from Los Angeles here. I'm feeding them, boarding them, da-da-da. I've got the editor. I've got the you know, guy from the lab. I can't do it that way. And, and um, you know, he had worked with directors that were using two and three cameras, but there was a different situation. So after the day or two, and I, we scheduled it in a way where we did the hardest scene in New York last. And we, so we went out of order a little bit. Uh, about the end of the film. The end of the film. So um, we scheduled that that way on purpose um, for obvious reasons. And um, so once he got my pace and my rhythm of the technical things that we had to do, then he understood and then he could bring it up, what he needed to bring up when that emotion or that problem, whatever the situation was. Um, I think that was the hardest part of directing him was the, the technical part of, you know, why can't I do this now? You know, I'm, that's hard. It's hard with the material. Mm -hmm. CBS had a standby director. Probably shouldn't tell this story. Uh, for me. Their question to me at that time, now you've got to remember we're in the 70s, is what's going to happen when she gets her period? They actually said things like that back then. She's on location, it's 100 and some degrees, we've got to worry, what's going to happen? <laughs> I mean, I just looked at them and said, I've been out on the sets and the things, and I, but it, just, it was the times. You know, you look back at it now, and it was just the times. And it, 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 it was. So a dear friend called Buzz Kulik, who was a wonderful movie of the week director, I did the Lindbergh kidnapping with him. We did uh, Carl Chessman's story and things like that. And he came to New York and stood by in the hotel for no money, no pay. He was just a dear friend and stood by. And then once we got back to the studio, they said, okay, leave him alone. We really don't want to know what's going on. Betty.
my friend. Here's Richard, Laura, Joe. And there weren't women doing this yet, you know. I Filipino had done a few films, and you know, uh, you know. The, Martha Coolidge hadn't even. Really Martha Coolidge hadn't come yet. That's true. And you know, my own personal problems with it was it was always, oh, it's the director's daughter, just you know, da 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 da, and you know. That must have been very frustrating too. It was frustrating, but I was on my own path at that time and trying to break away from that, and I knew that you know it would follow me forever and has and will and does, and you learn to accept it with age. Well, what did your father think of the movie? My father loved it. Yeah. I had a screening. Um, I never asked him to read the script, and I never asked him for any advice. That was, if you will, my ego uh, while we were doing it. He knew Bert. He sort of knew what the story was. We get to New York for the first day of filming, and there's an arrangement of flowers uh, in my room. I, of course, think that my boyfriend back in L.A. had sent them, but that wasn't true. It was from him, and the card said KISS, K-dot-I-dot-S-dot-S-dot, -S -dot -S -dot. KISS. So I called him to say thank you. I said, are you giving me a kiss? Did the person write this wrong? He said, no. Keep it simple, stupid. It was important to me at the end of the film that we really got Bert's emotion at the end when he goes down on the street and sees where his son, quote unquote, had passed. And if you see the movie, that was, uh, it was like a wounded animal. It was the most raw emotions I had heard out of anybody in my whole life to this day. He came and hugged me, and we talked a little bit, and he says, okay, when I'm ready, I'm going to go like this. I said, okay. I don't know what possessed me. My cameraman was next to me, the operator I knew. I said, as soon as he starts walking, you start filming. And yes, he walked there and fell to the ground. And he didn't say he was ready. He just came out with those whales. He just, it was so animalistic. It was so thick that it was so important we don't put no music over that. That has to be that moment without anything around it. No, in those days, you know, you, you, the sound effects was no, 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 I don't want that. We want to hear him going, no, 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 no. And at the end of that scene, I, of course, I go over to, to hug and kiss him and bring him up, and, and I turn around, and there wasn't a dry eye. Now, these are New York crews. At that time in history, again, New West Coast and East Coast did not get along. They did not like this West Coast girl coming to their t set telling them what to do. I had all that. That's another whole story. Uh, but these guys, these Teamsters, his friends, were sobbing. And I'm not talking about five minutes of sobbing. I'm talking five, ten. We had to break. We had to break for an hour to get people back, people around it, back to be able to do their work. 
I've never had an emotion like that on a film set to this day. And you had to, we had to have crowd control. This was Burt Young after Rocky and Talia Shire after Rocky. Now, there wasn't social media like there was, but they knew Rocky guys, they were filming there. They, they, we had people with pictures and signing and crowd control. It was like what you see today. I had to have five or six more assistant directors and, and gophers and people blocking the streets. We tried to, to do this where we could stay away from them, block things farther and farther away. But those screams you could hear for blocks. Yeah. It's a very strong memory I have. But you have to know the core of the man is still dealing with this kind of grief. As we started the interview, how do you deal with the death of a child? Whether under mysterious circumstances, whether under horrific circumstances, whether in just an accident. A parent can never get over that. I can't imagine anybody getting over it. And clearly, he hasn't gotten over it. His work is always that. His talk is always that. It, it's, it is what that is. It's a pain. It's a, it, it's a pain that is right on the surface. Um, not a guy that will go to therapy and put his emotion in little boxes and tie a ribbon around it and put it over here and bring it out, da, da, da. He's real. That's real life. That is a real person with a heart and a soul and a conscious that not many men have. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, you can visit my blog where I post videos related to the subjects that I interview. Just go to moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. You can find this podcast at moviestilldawnpodcast.com, but we're also available on most of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and YouTube. I would love to hear from you. If you're inspired to reach out, you can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. And if you have a film geek in your life, or even just a mildly curious fan, spread the word that we're here. <laughs>